Good morning, church. Have your Bibles open already to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 16 to 34 as Christy just read to us. As you're turning there, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, the many blessings of our lives for family, for friends, for this church. But we thank you especially for your grace to us in Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, taking us from rebels to well-loved children, from being defined and identified with our sin to being saints. We praise you and thank you for that. God, would you now, by your Spirit, lead us into all truth in this passage. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 17. We're going to jump right in. Look at verse 16. It tells us, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Well, if you remember last week, where did Paul depart from? What was the name of the town? Say it out loud. Berea. That's correct. What was notable about the Bereans? They heard the truth and then they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. But Paul's ministry was not received well by everyone in Berea, if you remember. In fact, he had to flee. And so now that he has fled from Berea, he's made his way to Athens by boat. We know that Silas and Timothy hung back at Berea and waited. They were then going to come to Athens a little bit later to meet up with him. So we're at the point in the account where Paul has fled from Berea for a refuge and a safe haven in Athens, and he was not afraid of persecution, persecution even to the point of beating and stoning and being left for dead. He just felt like he still had more use to the master, and so he wanted to get this gospel message as far as he could. So in order to prevent any sort of bodily harm or injury, he flees to Athens by boat. He arrives in Athens, we're told in this account, only to be torn apart in a very different way. Did you hear that in the account? He arrives in Athens, and while his body is no longer under threat, his heart has been ripped apart. Now, you may know this just from your grade 8 history class or whatever, but Athens was already by this point a cultural center of the world. It was a place where um, so many foundational formational ideas that have been embraced in the West were started out as seedlings. It was the cradle of democracy. It was a place where the arts boomed. And so you can imagine that Paul, growing up, would have heard so much about this great city of Athens. Paul being a learned man, he would have been exposed to many different philosophies. And so one can only imagine that he's getting excited about going to Athens. He has to flee there, but he's probably thinking, oh, it's going to be kind of cool to see, right? So he arrives there in Athens, and he's on business. He's not a tourist. This is his second missionary journey. But he was surrounded by tourists. That's implied in the text. 
Athens, because of its great stature as a city, was a place where people would have come from all over the Mediterranean, the then known world, to do the sightseeing that we still do to this day, to behold this great city in all of its majesty. And all of those tourists, they would have arrived in Athens and they would have been like saucer-eyed and slack-jawed at the glory and magnificence of this cradle of democracy and this hotbed of thought and idea and art. But not Paul. We're told right at the onset of this account that he arrives and he finds this city to be an absolute disaster. Everything that would have formerly allured him, everything that would have impressed him before his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, he now finds disgusting and distasteful. It repulses him. And you know, I don't want to move too far into this account before pointing this out for you and for me. Perhaps you've experienced the same thing. Before your conversion to Jesus, you were enamored of so many different things. There were so many competing interests in your life that drew you and, and shaped your interests and got a hold of your affections and your imagination. And now that you've been converted in Jesus Christ, those very same things, as appealing as they are to everyone else, they repulse you. It's exactly what's happening to Paul in this passage. I want to go over these 19 verses with a fine-toothed comb, and we're just going to look at it very simply. What did Paul see, what did he do, and what did he say? We'll look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul looked at Athens, and he saw behind the attractive allure. He saw that there was nothing great about this city at all. In fact, he saw that it was a city that had completely lost its way. It was full of idols, Luke records. Now in the original Greek, this word that we translate to full of idols, it would literally translate to... Um, being smothered underneath. It's also the same word that would be used in Greek for a luxurious overgrowth of idols. Paul arrives and he sees through all of this beautiful superficial stuff that would have captured his imagination before and he's cut to the heart because he sees a city that is like submerged in a rainforest of idolatry. That's all he can see. How did he react? Well, he saw through all of the allures and distractions, and he saw it for the dry rot that it was. He wasn't impressed with culture or sophistication or intellectual erudition. He's like, yeah, man, that's idolatry. That's standing against God. Verse 16, we're told that his spirit was provoked within him. 
Now, I don't know when was the last time that your spirit was provoked. My family tells me that I'm too readily provoked in my old age. Just kind of walking around like a grumpy old man most of the time. I'm trying not to. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would work that out in me. But what Paul has here is not just being merely perturbed. Again, the original Greek word is actually the word for a epileptic seizure or spasm. He finds the idolatry in this city of Athens so repulsive that he recoils with this like visceral reaction. It's horrible. He's provoked. He's distressed. He has a fit. Verse 16. We see that his reaction to idolatry and to sin is not merely negative with horror and dismay. But in verses 17 to 18, we find that after getting over the initial seizure of such idolatry, he then turns it into something positive. He sees it as an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. And so he starts to preach. Look, I want to pause on this, okay, and, and note this very well. It's apparent to anyone who's a Christian man or woman living in Canada that we live in a season of growing and increasing darkness. Idolatry is on the rise all around us. The kind of idolatry that Paul would later write in Romans 1 causes God to hand people over to themselves in wrath and in anger. You say, well, R.D., that seems a little bit harsh. Well, I don't know. I just believe the Bible. And in Romans chapter 1, it says that the evidence that a people have turned so radically over to idolatrous views that God has handed them over to wrath, the evidence of that is that there would be sexual perversity normalizing women lying with women and men lying with men. Don't get mad at me. Read your Bible. That's what it says. And so we find ourselves living in this age that is so much like the Athens that Paul finds himself in in Acts chapter 17. What should Christians do? Well, pray to God that you have a tender conscience that's repulsed by it and provoked like Paul. But don't merely see it as a negative, right? Don't don't just get angry because that doesn't prove anything. Instead, see it like Paul as a gospel opportunity. Look, we've acknowledged that if you're a Christian man or woman in Canada, you've seen the growing darkness. You've seen the hand of the evil one at work. But have you also seen that as providentially an opportunity from God for the gospel? It's cliched to say, but it's true. The light shines brightest in the darkness. When you're talking with people in the world today and you're sharing your faith in Jesus, there's been a change. You know, I used to have to start off any evangelistic conversations convincing people that there was such thing as sin and evil. 
I don't have to do that anymore. Most people are well aware of sin and evil, not only out in the world, but also in their own lives and in their own hearts. And so what we have here in Athens and what we have here in this moment in Burlington is a gospel opportunity where people will eagerly receive the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. You don't have to convince them that they need saving. That's how it was for Paul. He arrives in Athens. He sees rampant idolatry. He's repulsed. He has spasmic fits. And then he gets down to preaching. He says, what a wonderful opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Verses 17 to 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Oh, who happened to be there? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So immediately we see three different categories of people that Paul encounters with the gospel. Sort of two categories with a subcategory. Anyway, however you think about it. In the city of Athens, this city of great idolatry, there are a bunch of devout Jews and God-fearers. And Paul tells them about Jesus. You see, in Scripture, Jews are typified as those who think that they know how God works. But Paul preaches the gospel to them. The second and third, or second with a subset, <laughs> group of people, are the Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, if Jews are people who think that they know how God works, Greek philosophers are people who think that they know how the world works. And they need the gospel. So he encounters these two groups of Greek philosophy school, right? Epicureans, Stoics. Again, do you guys remember your grade 11 philosophy class? No? All right. So let me, let me give you a bit of background because it matters. So Epicureans, um, they were a group of, a school of Greek philosophy who did not believe in the existence of God, gods, whatever. Their outlook on life was, at best you have 80 years, that's all you have, and so you should just send it. Try to get as much pleasure and as much joy out of this life as you possibly can because those 80 years are all that you have. Those are the Epicureans. The Stoics, well, they believed that they knew how life worked and they said, well, actually, it's kind of the opposite. Stoics were like, you know, if you want to um, live a good life, then you should have sober-minded detachment. The way to find meaning in life, the way to find a good life, the way that life works, according to Stoics, was sort of the opposite of the Epicureans. The Epicureans said, seek pleasure as, as the highest virtue and the highest good. The Stoics said, who cares about pleasure? Be sober-minded, control the things that you can control, and don't worry about the things that you can't control. That's how life works. For the Epicureans, their emphasis was on 
chance and escape and enjoyment and pleasure. For Stoics, it was about fatalism, submission to the fates, and the endurance of pain. You might think, gosh, why in the world are we talking about Epicureans and Stoics? And the reason is because still to this day, the dominant message of our culture will fall into one of those two categories. People who think that they know how life works and they're nothing more than the repackaging and reincarnation of Epicureans. They say, you know, the only meaning that I have in life is in this 80 years and so I'm just going to seek out as much unadulterated, even perverse pleasure as I possibly can because that's what's going to give my life meaning. You don't believe me? Just open up your social media feeds. Those are Epicureans. Or the other narrative is the Stoics, the Neo-Stoics. And you know, this is one that I could easily fall into because I kind of like these guys, but they're just wrong. (laughs) Well, no, actually, they're partly right. They're partly right. There's some general revelation of that that it's true. But the Neo-Stoics would be guys who say, you map meaning in your life insofar as you take responsibility. And that's going to get you pretty far. But you're going to end up with a made bed, a tidy room, a good-looking body, and a good-looking corpse, and you're going to go to hell if all you have is Stoicism. If social media shows you the Epicureans, then 5 a.m. at the gym shows you the Stoics. Both the Epicureans back then and today and the Stoics back then and today, um, friends, I want you to see that they're actually motivated by a good desire. They're trying to rescue their own life from cynicism and nihilism. So many, especially young men and women today, need their lives rescued from those same two things. Is it just me, or has there been a rise in cynicism lately? What about nihilism? People who, in the absence of any overarching meaning in their life, Say nothing is anything. We all turn to worm food. So who cares? Problems back then that the Epicureans and the Stoics addressed, still problems today that neo-Epicureanism and neo-Stoicism are trying to address. But when Paul shows up in Athens and these philosophers are, are Epicureans and Stoics, they think that they know how life works, He tells them what life is really all about. The true life is found not in excessive pleasure, not in exercising restraint. True life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. You know, friends, that's the consistent witness of Scripture. I'm seeing so many people coming to faith in Christ as the darkness rises all around us. Praise God. I think what's happening is the devil is overplaying his hand and as 
the, the slow road to hell was working for a long time. You know, people were just oblivious to their need for saving, but now they live in a world that's so wicked and so evil that they say, man, if that's, if that's evil and evil exists, what is true and where can I find truth and where can I find meaning? And then that's a perfect opportunity for the gospel and for the Holy Spirit to convert them. Just yesterday, I inscribed in a gift Bible for a young man young man that I've known since he was just a little boy. He's 21 years old now. Up until recently, he was an avowed atheist. If our son Matthew even tried to talk to him about Jesus, he would dismiss it with scorn. Usually a couple of expletives, too. This guy, just a couple of days ago, said, hey, do you think that you could give me a Bible? Of course I can give you a Bible. And in it, I inscribed John 1, verses 31 to 32, that says, Now Jesus did many other signs and wonders. Many of them are not in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in believing, find life in his name. Jesus is the only way to life. Not pleasures, not responsibility, not the gym, not social media, not likes, not any of those things. None of those things will ever map real meaning in life. Because Paul showed up in Athens and he talked to the Epicureans and the Stoics and the scriptures still talk to them today. And when Paul showed up in Athens, he preached the gospel to them. Not primarily as a new way of thinking or acting, right? It wasn't like, okay, so listen, you've got um, Epicurus, you've got the school of Stoicism. Those are legitimate ways of thinking and acting and approaching the world foundationally. But I just want you to consider this other one. You know, it's the teachings of this guy named Jesus. Maybe you'd like to work some of those teachings. No, no, that's not how it works. Jesus is not just a different philosophy. Jesus is a whole new life. It's the miracle by which the Holy Spirit causes you to see idolatry and sin in your own life and be convicted of that sin. It's only the Holy Spirit that can cause you to see that you have been standing against God. And then that same Holy Spirit that shows you the beauty and the glory of a Savior in Jesus. Who pays the debt that you could never pay for your sin. He doesn't just change your mind. He gives you a new life in Christ. It's not just a new philosophy. And so this new life that's been granted to you by God in Christ, you then live it for Jesus because Jesus lived and died for you. That's how you find life. That's virtue. That's what is so much better than any of the schools of thought dominant in Athens back then or today. Verse 18. So they 
talked with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So some of them accused him of insanity. Others accused him of blasphemy. And it's all because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Look at verses 19 to 21. So they take him, they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul is given a further audience. He moves from the marketplace up to the Areopagus. We don't know if Paul's willingness to do this was, um, well, we don't know if their question was genuine or disingenuous, right? We also don't know. Some commentators suggest that the Areopagus was not just a meeting place where they would exchange ideas, but it may also have been a court, a tribunal. So it's possible that Paul here is being brought up on charges of blasphemy and causing trouble. And so maybe he's being brought to court. But either way, Paul takes them up on their offer. Then in verse 21, Luke makes this interesting side note. Look at verse 21. It says, So all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <laughs> and yeah, I said that with disdain. That's actually how Luke wrote it. They all wanted to hear something new. And friends, that's another problem today, isn't it? This perpetual, never satisfied, never satiated desire for something new exposes a deep myop myopia in our own lives. We um, have this nearsightedness and this arrogance. We chase after the newest fad the newest idea, the newest path. We're like toddlers distracted by shining things. Right? Oh, it's, what's the newest idea? What's the newest path? What's the secret? Oh, I found something. Like, come on, man. It's like, it's so, it's so pathetic that Luke even notes it here. Just all of these Athenians, they just did nothing but sit around and want the newest iPhone. It's the exact same as the last one. I don't know if it is. No, but what they were after in Athens and what we're after today is the newest idea, the newest thought, the newest philosophical fad. We've forgotten that there's nothing new under the sun. That errors are on recycle repeat. Every single error of humanity, every single heresy of the church is, are all things that have always been. And we would do well to acknowledge that. Truth is not ever found in anything new or novel. No new fads, no new ideas. Look, if you are searching for truth, if you say, RD, I'm, I'm on this quest, I want to know what's true, I want to orient my life around truth, don't go to the self-help section at Chapters Indigo and look at books that were published in 2022. 
Read the Bible. For truth that is literally as old as the hills. So the Athenians, they want to go looking for new things. But Paul, in verse 24, he begins the body of his sermon with the God who made the world and everything in it. See the contrast? It's foolishness and it's folly to give yourself to always searching after newest fads, newest ideas, the secret of this, the secret of that. Baloney. Paul starts in creation. Honoring the old paths. Let's look at verse 22. So Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He appeals to their sincerity. It's a really good model for us in sharing our faith in a secular place like Burlington. To acknowledge that there are so many people around us who are sincere. That's their starting point. Too often we take people who disagree with us and we begin by categorizing them as evil. They may not be evil, they may be sincere, they're just wrong. Did you know you can be sincere and wrong? So Paul does this to win an audience with them. Verse 23, he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I'm going to tell you about. That's what he says to them. Gosh, what a great paradigm for evangelism. Paul begins with this acknowledgement that long before he has arrived in Athens, long before he stood on the Areopagus, God has already been there and been at work. You see, Paul's missionary journeys would have all come to naught, except that Jesus said, I have many sheep who are not yet of this fold. So Paul can with confidence arrive in Athens, go up onto the Areopagus, and know that in a crowd of that size, there would be some people upon whom the Father had placed his affection from before the foundation of the world, for whom the Son shed his blood to pay for their sin. He could say that with confidence. Like, let me tell you about the unknown God. I know I've mentioned it before, but I love missionary biographies. And one of my favorite accounts is one that happened pretty close to home here. Um, the Jesuit missionaries to the Huron Indians. They arrived, these Jesuit missionaries, and they did just this. They said, so you have this story about the mighty Gitche Manitou. They said, well, let me tell you about the mighty Gitche Manitou. And then they used that to tell them about Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. And so here, here's the point of application. This can shape the way that we share our faith in Jesus with our Muslim neighbors. There are 500,000 immigrants coming into Canada now every year, and most of them are not coming from England. 
And so you are going to be surrounded by people who have these different cultures and these different faiths, and many of them are going to be Muslim. I just, I'm not picking on Muslims. I just thought it's a good example. And so the Muslims that you're talking to, they're going to believe in a prophet named Issa. That's Jesus. And if you listen to them and talk to them and assume their sincerity, you can affirm the things that they believe that are true about Isa, and you can then show them and expose the idolatry and the shortcomings of their views that are leading them to hell. Paul starts off with, I see that you guys are sincere. I see that you have a, a shrine to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Oh, by the way, it's Jesus. this is Paul's approach to idolatry in Athens. And so we're building this picture. Does this mean that um, Paul is okay with other world religions? That he's, he's just, you know, he's fine with idolatry? Does Paul believe, he says, let me tell you about the unknown God, does Paul believe that all religions lead to the truth of God? The answer is clearly no. It would seem nice to say things like that, wouldn't it? All religions lead to God. You know, as long as you're sincere and as long as you're searching for truth, that's all that God cares about. But friends, that may seem nice. But from Scripture, we know that that is a sure road to hell. Paul shows up in Athens. His stomach is turned by the idolatry. He doesn't, he doesn't like it. He doesn't make peace with it. And so when we live here in Canada, and pluralism is this cardinal virtue for Canadians. In Scripture, we find that it's not a cardinal virtue at all. In fact, it's a damnable vice to say that all religions lead to God. There is only one God. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is saving and ruling and reigning. He's the only one who will return to be the judge. So what does that mean for our interactions in an idolatrous city with other world religions? Well, I think it means that we start off the way Paul did, right? Win an audience, assume sincerity, show them from their beliefs where God has already been at work. But it also means that good fences make good neighbors. If you're a Christian and you want to share your faith with other religions and other people, you don't only invest all of your time in finding common ground. You also have to keenly look for where their faith has departed into error. And you can affirm the things in their religion that may be true. But if you stop there, then you are leaving them in idolatry. And you are ignoring the fact that they are on a road to hell without warning. Talking to someone, they're a different faith. All of your instincts as a Canadian will be like, 
yeah, yeah, just, you know, affirm them in that. Leave it alone. But friends, if you're a Christian man or woman, show them Jesus. Love them enough to make it uncomfortable for a moment. So much of what we call Christianity in the West preaches peace, peace where there is no peace. We're so concerned with trying to alleviate any sense of guilt, even if it's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that we tell people that there is peace, peace where there is no peace. What a damnable indictment. You got to be willing to make it uncomfortable and tell them about Jesus, warn them. Paul doesn't just say, oh, you guys have this statue to the unknown God. That's wonderful. Good. Sure hope that's Jesus. No, no, he presses into it. He says, that's a good starting point. Fine. But now come to Jesus Christ and repent. Verse 24. So he begins with Jesus. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man. Well, Christian man or woman, you know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. God does not live in temples made of hand. But Jesus is the temple. Verse 25, Paul says, he is not served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, Jesus in Mark 10 said, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Here's the point. Worldly idols need to be served. They need regular human service. They demand it. And while it's true in one sense that we serve the Lord, we serve Jesus in response to his greater service to us. Idols are served to try to earn merit, to try to gain favor with them that never arrives. Idols take. Jesus gives. He says, I give my life as a ransom for many. That's why Paul says, God doesn't live in temples that are made by man. He's not served by human hands, though he needs anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Look at verse 27. He's talking to the Athenians here, and he says, look, um, so many people are seeking after God. They are groping around in the dark of idolatry. And every once in a while, they might stumble upon glimpses of God. You know, a blind squirrel finds a nut. But when you are doing that in your life, you might be groping around in the darkness, life filled with idolatry. You're groping around in the darkness. You catch this little tiny glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you discover that he was actually seeking after you all along. That's what Paul says. Verse 27. 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Look, this is true for every sinner made saint in Christ. He's with you. You are with him. Paul pushes this so far. Look at verse 28. He says, and he's quoting a secular poet of the time, but he says, For in him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Have you ever thought about that as the picture of the Christian life? God is not remote to you. You no longer seek after him and search after him and grope around in idolatry. Instead, in Christ, you are so near to him and he is so near to you that it is in him that you live and move and have your being. Here's what it means. If you're a Christian man or woman, there is no place you can go apart from the very presence of Jesus. When you're at home, Jesus is with you. When you're washing dishes, Jesus. When you're driving your car, Jesus. Riding the go train, Jesus. At work, Jesus. When you're at home alone in your bed at night with the lights off and you're feeling anxious and lonely and all alone like the world is set against you, Jesus. For in him you live, you move. Your entire existence is in him. You have your being clothed in Christ, wrapped in him. And he's for you and not against you. You're like a well-loved child. That's what Paul says. I want to skip ahead to verse 32. The sermon is complete and what happens? Well, some mocked, but others said, tell us more about this. Verses 33 to 34, so Paul goes out from their midst. But he leaves with an addition to his posse. Did you see that in verse 34? Who has he gained? Two people. Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris, a woman named Damaris. Let's look at those two characters for a second. So Dionysius he is an Areopagite and identified as such. He'd have been like in the ruling class. He'd have been one of those rich academic guys who was super smart, who sat up on the Areopagus, perhaps a judge. And he is told by Paul, there is a judge. He's coming, and if you repent, you can have assurance. And then there's a woman named Demarius. Now the interesting thing here, the word that we translate to woman from Greek, it could mean woman, it could mean wife, it could mean courtesan. So which one is it? Well, this is where context would help. 
There was no way that a woman, a respectable woman, a wife of an elder statesman like Dionysius would ever be allowed in such a vulgar place of learning as the Areopagus. So it's most likely not his wife. The Areopagus, however, would have been filled with, I don't know, what do you call them? Um, Courtesans. Side pieces. That's what's happening here. Dionysius gets saved. And so does his courtesan. Look, here's the picture. The gospel comes to him and not only redeems him from his sin, but redeems her from her sinful decisions as well. They are granted a new life together in Christ. That's why we see their names That's why we're told that she was a gune from the Areopagus, a woman, a wife, a courtesan. This is the power of the gospel to convert and to change and give new life. Friends, that's how Paul's sermon closes. With an invitation to repent. Perhaps you've been living your life in idolatry, unawares. But now the Holy Spirit is convicting you. Even the conviction itself is good news because the Holy Spirit only convicts those that he's setting out to save. It's evidence that God has set his affection upon you and is saving you in Jesus Christ. What should you do with it? Repent. Bow your knee to Jesus and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And in him, you will have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word that leads us into all truth. Truth that is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are alive. And people still today, like Dionysius and Damaris, are being saved. Give us truly thankful hearts, we pray in your name. Amen.